listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. So uh, last night it, I had the uh, had the privilege in quotes of chaperoning the prom at my uh, at our, the high school that I work at as principal, and I know I've shared this story with some of you before, but I grew up Baptist and dancing was taboo. And so I resented it a lot when I was a teenager, and now I've been cursed to a lifetime of chaperoning uh, proms, so there, it's never good to be resentful when you're a teenager, but. We're in uh, John chapter 19, and um, as we start, I just wanted to um, share a little story with you. I don't know if any of you have gotten into watching um, the series Sherlock that uh, the BBC has had on it. So it's great. I mean, it's amazingly shot, uh, really well done, does like a retelling of the Arthur Conan Doyle stories that have been part of the early, early 20th century. But as I was preparing this message, I reflected on one aspect of, of what that show does a really good job at. They really do well in capturing this sense that, you know, all the regular people in the world sort of experience something, we see something, we uh, you know, are able to observe it, but then somehow Sherlock sees it at a whole other level and puts all the pieces together. And it's this idea that what we experience, there may be a bigger something that we don't actually see. And I have a little clip just to capture this. This is early on. I think it's the first episode, actually. And, and uh, Watson is just getting to know him. And uh, this is a, a little bit of an element of that. All right. So you have a little bit of a sense that he sees some things that you and I might not see when we first uh, observe something. That reminded me of this little skit that I'd seen when I was a, a kid. Uh, in this skit, you can just picture it happening here on stage. There's a mother and child sort of walking across the stage this way as if it was a street scene and a, a man walking the other direction. And uh, the uh, scene opens and they're walking across the stage and the man plows into the uh, mother and child and grabs the pocketbook of the woman and keeps going. Then just as this happens, a narrator jumps out and says to the audience, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Did we just see what we thought we saw? Let's roll that thing back again. We're gonna go through it again. We're gonna do it more slowly and you'll get to see it again. And so the people go back to their positions that they were in and they walk through and they're walking a little bit more slowly this time and the, they collide into each other again. And this time you can see that what actually happens is the, they bump into each other and the lady's pocket, the wallet flies up out of the pocketbook. The man grabs it and keeps going. And again, the narrator jumps out, says, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Did we really see what we thought we saw? Let's slow this down and we'll watch it again. So this time they're going across the stage very, very slowly. And as they get close to each other and plow into each other, all of a sudden the little kid punches the man and the woman beats him over the head with a pocketbook and his, they pull his wallet out and they walk away with it. And suddenly you realize that what you thought you saw happen in the first place was not what was really happening. And we're gonna look at John chapter 19 today and we're gonna see that same kind of thing that um, I'm gonna go through it fairly quickly the way that it would have been experienced and then we're gonna go back through and see if there's something more happening that we can understand in it. I'm gonna read, and this is gonna be a long passage, but I'm gonna read the uh, first uh, 37 verses or so. 
And just uh, the words will be on the screen. You can listen to them or follow along in your Bible. This is the story of the crucifixion. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Pilate was the Roman governor of that region. He would have been the chief Roman authority uh, overseeing that entire area. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, these are to the Jewish leaders. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin." From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pause. God, that is just heavy scripture as we realize what you did and what your son did on our behalf. Um, Lord, as we delve into this passage today, I just would ask that it would come alive for each person here, that we would understand it in new ways today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. So I wanna share sort of like what you would have experienced if you were there that day, seven things that you would have noticed or taken note of uh, on, that took place in this crucifixion. First of all, it was the, these Roman soldiers, and that with them, this idea of a crown, a cry, and a robe, and we see that in the first three verses. So as would have been very typical in that time period when the Romans took somebody prisoner and they were getting ready to punish this person, part of what they would have done would have been to torture the person. So they would have uh, engaged in the kinds of things that were done here in this time. So for Christ, they took a, uh, a crown of thorns, they took a, a thorn bush, wrapped it into the shape of a crown, and would have pressed it onto his head, and it would have... Uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, needles from those thorns would have, would have impaled his skull and would have resulted in him bleeding uh, at that time. And they put a robe on him. It's very likely that this was actually an originally a red robe that over time had become bleached by the sun and took on a purple hue to it. And they began to cry out and call to him, uh, King of the Jews, calling him King of the Jews. And so we have these soldiers and they have the crown, the cry, and the robe. And then the second thing that you'll see, uh, particularly in verse 9, is the fact that he's silent before Pilate. Um, in verse 9, it says uh, there, uh, he entered his headquarters again, meaning Pilate, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So when he has a chance to defend himself, uh, Jesus does not respond to them. Jesus does not uh, give them an answer. Third thing that you'll notice is the fact that there's this sign or inscription that's put on the cross. And we see this in verses 19 to 22. And it talks about the fact there that Herod put a sign on the cross that says, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders are like, nope, it shouldn't say that. It should say this man said that he was king of the Jews. But you sort of have to remember each of their positions. The reality of the matter is, is that from Pilate's perspective, the kind of crime that results in you having to be hung on a cross is that you position yourself as being in rebellion against Caesar. So from Pilate's perspective, this was the crime that would lead to him being crucified. And the Jewish leaders had a, had a different perspective. From their perspective, this man had claimed to be the son of God. This man had claimed, in a sense, to be the king of the Jews. Therefore, that was his crime, and that should be what was inscribed on the cross. 
Fourth thing that you'll see in this passage is that Jesus takes care of his mother. So in the midst of what he's going through on the cross, he looks down, he sees his mother there, and he talks to John. John often refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loves. So he looks out on the cross, sees Mary, his mother, sees John, and he connects the two of them together so that his mother is taken care of. Fifth thing that you'll see is that while Jesus is on the cross, uh, it would have been a horrible experience. Uh, the weather is probably very similar, actually, to the weather here. And uh, it would have been dried out, dehydrated, in deep pain. And he's ready to say something important as he finishes his time there on the cross. And he asks for a drink so that he's able to have, uh, his mouth is able to work so he's able to share what he wants to share. So he's uh, thirsty on the cross. Sixth thing that we see, and we see this in verse 30, it says there, uh, when he finished with the, the sour wine, he bows his head and he gave up his spirit. So Jesus died. And so here's the God of the universe and he has come to earth and he has died. And then finally, the seventh thing to look at is the piercing of Christ's side. And we see that in verses 31 to 37. And what would happen is that as a prisoner hung on the cross, uh, all the weight was where the nails went through their hands and through their feet. And what they would actually die of is, was asphyxiation because there's so much weight of their body. And the only way they could continue to breathe while they held themselves in that position, this was a long, slow, horrible death. The only way they could breathe in that position was to push themselves up off their, with their feet um, using those nails that were in their feet as leverage. Uh, so it would have been a great deal of pain. But to hasten death, the Roman soldiers would often break the legs of those prisoners because that was the way they had held themselves up and now they would be in sheer agony and no longer be able to do that. But they come to Jesus and they uh, choose not to do that because he is already dead. And instead, they, a sword pierces his side. It would have pierced into the uh, cavity around the heart and lungs area. And from that area, it's called the pericardium. And from that area, blood and water come out and uh, the soldiers and the author note that. This is all done on the day of preparation. The day of preparation would have been the day prior to the Sabbath. So it was the day they sort of got ready for the Sabbath event. And I feel just like that narrator right now who jumps out and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's stop for a second. Let's roll this thing back and see what we can really see from it. So I wanna go back through these seven things again and sort of say, hey, what's really going on here? When we slow this thing down, what do we really see happening? So starting first with those Roman soldiers in the uh, crown, the cry, and the robe. There's an irony in here. Here he is, Jesus Christ, who really was royalty, and these Roman soldiers were treating him in the way that they were. He was unlike any of us, deserving of a crown, uh, deserving of the honor of being called the king, deserving of a royal robe, the purple robe that he was wearing. That color purple was a symbol of royalty in its day. Second thing that we talked about was this idea of silence before Pilate. Why in the world would Jesus be silent before Pilate? He was an innocent man. He could make a case for his innocence, Right? I thought this was a great example of what Pastor Jason shared last week of this idea that of Jesus being actively compliant with what God's wishes were, with what he knew his destiny was to be. Because here's the reality, guys. If he had defended himself, he would have won. He is God after all, right? He could have ordered himself to be released. 
He could, he could have made the world's best argument for his case, and he was innocent after all. But it was only in his silence that he could ensure his fate, that he could know that he was going to be obedient to what God wanted him to do. Third thing we talked about were this, the inscription that was written above him on the cross. And again, the thing that strikes me about this is the, the fact that there's such irony in this. Jesus Christ truly is the king of the Jews and of the Gentiles. He has all power and all authority. And here's this sign, and they were purposely not recognizing who he was, but in this, they've stumbled on the truth. They've recognized him for who he really is. Jesus really is the king. Next, we talked about the fact that Jesus took care of his mother. He just, I mean, we can't even imagine it. He's in, in horrible agony. He's uh, just suffering this incredible, incredibly awful death experience. And he's at a moment that he's dreaded. Remember the whole purpose in John 17 was this idea of can this cup pass from me? He, I mean, he knows what his fate is. He knows how challenging this is gonna be. And here he is, now he's experiencing it. And it would have been so tempting in that situation. If any of us were there, I'm sure we would have been highly selfish in that moment uh, for him even to have been just even focused on God the Father. But what does he do instead? He makes sure that his mother is taken care of. As the oldest son, he had this, he felt this sense of obligation for this. There's a great likelihood that his uh, earthly father, Joseph, was actually dead at this point, um, and that's um, his brothers, there's some possibility that, that because Mary had, had believed who Jesus was and that they had disowned him, that they were not part of the situation anymore either. But in that first century world, Jesus knew this, that, the, um, that she would have had no inheritance rights as a woman. So if she was gonna be cared for, the only way that that was gonna happen is that she had to become connected to a male who had earning capacity. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, he looks at John and says, behold your mother. He looks at Mary and says, behold your son. And so John goes and he takes care of Mary from that time forward. Fifth thing that we looked at, Jesus is thirsty on the cross. And it describes the fact that they take a sponge and they dip it into the sour wine. They put it on the end of a hyssop branch and pass it up to uh, Jesus. What's interesting about it, we aren't familiar with sour wine, but it was sort of the drink of the common man of that time period. It was cheap and it was readily available. Uh, and that really helps us recognize the fact that Jesus was like us, an everyday common person. And it describes this, uh, this hyssop branch that was used to uh, get, bring it to Jesus' mouth. And that actually, for the Jewish people that were observing this, had a connection to that first Passover. So the first time Passover ever was celebrated or ever took place was when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And during that time period, they'd been there for about 400 years, and uh, God called Moses to lead his people to freedom. And so through a series of conversations that Moses has with the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh, uh, he continues to beg for the release of his people. And God supports that request by what are known as the plagues, these punishments that come on the people of Egypt. And the last of those punishments, in the last of those punishments, what was called the angel of death, was to go through the entire 
land of Egypt and kill the firstborn child in every single home. It's a horrible kind of thing. And God tells Moses, says, tell the people that if they don't want this to happen to them, that they need to sacrifice a, a perfect lamb, a lamb that was out, without blemish and spot, and then take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of the home and on the lentil of that door as well. And it describes the fact that they actually used the same hyssop branch to dip into the blood, and that was what they used to wipe on the, the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel of the door. And what would happen is that when the angel of death came over, he would pass over the homes that had the blood on the door that were protected by the blood. And that blood becomes a symbol of, what, uh, of, of the fact that uh, God's God had forgiven them for their sins. So here we are a couple thousand years later, right? Jesus is on the cross. He's the ultimate lamb of God. He was a perfect sacrifice of sin for sins. No longer did there need to be an annual sacrifice and instead Christ's death once and for all uh, covers, ensures that man's sins are covered and that God can forgive. Sixth thing that we see was this death of Christ that was in verse 30. Remember that description there, it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Of all the people that we ever have an account of dying in scripture, this is the only one where the, there's a term of command, uh, and, and, and meaning that the idea that the death was an act of his own will. Nobody else has ever given, used this kind of description, so it shows how unique uh, Christ is. And he does it because he recognizes that his work on earth is finished. What did he mean? When he says it is finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, all the sins of the world, the consequences, the punishment for all of those sins of the world are poured out in him. That's all the sins that had ever happened before that point, all the sins that were gonna ever happen going forward as well. His death on the cross paid the price for those sins. It covered the cost for those sins. In fact, that term, it is finished, is a single Greek word in we found, archaeologists have found evidence of that word on little tax bills that people would receive. It was little pieces of papyrus. And it would have indicated how much you had to pay in taxes. You would have brought it to the tax person and, like we're gonna do tomorrow. And um, you would bring it to the tax person and the tax person would stamp this word onto it. And that word meant paid in full. So the, the same word that we used, which was translated paid in full, meaning related to these tax bills, related to what Christ has done on the cross for us. What a picture of what he's done on our behalf. He has paid the full price of what each of, each of us should have to pay for our sins. The Bible says that the wages, the, the just punishment, what we deserve for our sins is death. And instead, Christ has paid for that for us by dying on our behalf. And that gives us the opportunity of, of having eternal life now because of what he's done, life that will go on forever with God after our physical death. In the synoptic gospels, and the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're just oftentimes a little bit different than, than John, so there's a theological term for it called the synoptic gospels. But there's two other elements of this that I think really capture a sense of what was happening at this moment. First, um, it describes the sky becoming dark. And, uh, and it, it's, it lasts like that. In fact, it was extremely dark, as dark as night and maybe darker, even though it was the middle of the day. And 
this literally and metaphorically captures what's going on in the cosmological sense as well. And the reality is, is that that moment when God pours out on the innocent Jesus Christ the sins of the whole world, world the consequences, the, the just payment that needed to be made for those sins, the whole sky darkens and uh, it's, it's like night at that moment. And then in the book of Luke, it describes that what happens at the very moment when Jesus says, it is finished. It describes this veil in the temple that rips from the top to the bottom. And this veil was a, was a curtain that was about 30 feet tall, and it separated an area within the temple called the Holy of Holies. And this was the area in the temple, and I think we have a picture of it coming up as well. Uh, this is the area in the temple that separated the, um, the place where the uh, where people could go in the place where the high priest only went once per year. And it was when that high priest went into that area that he made a sacrifice uh, and that covered the sins, his own sins and the sins of the people as well. And when he went to that Holy of Holies, it was called that because that was the place where God met man. That was the spot where it happened. And so we have this account of what happens at that moment when Jesus says, it is finished, and he dies on the cross. This veil, this curtain rips in a way that no human being could ever do because it was 30 feet tall and very thick. And what is happening at that moment is symbolizing, is recognizing for us that we now can approach God directly. We don't have to work through that high priest. We can have a direct relationship with God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's an amazing uh, experience. Amen. Then the seventh thing, the piercing of Christ's side. Not only was this done to fulfill the scriptures, but it, for the Jewish observers of that time period, it was yet another marker of the fact of the connection to the Passover. And uh, after, the, after they would kill the Passover lamb, the scriptures told, tell us that they were commanded to roast that lamb and eat it. And in the process of, of doing that, they were not to break any of the bones of that lamb. So again, here we are, you know, 2,000 years later, Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb, the once and forever Passover lamb. And like that lamb, when his blood is shed and his life-saving work is done, his bones are not to be broken either. In a moment, we're gonna have a chance to, uh, before we conclude our, our ser uh, service today, we're gonna have a chance to celebrate uh, communion which is a, a picture of what Christ has done on the cross. It's a con continuation of what Christ did the night before the story that we are reading today where he commemorates what we call the Last Supper, his last time of being with the disciples. And it, was, it too was a picture of Passover. It's no, it's no uh, coincidence that Christ dies at that time. It was part of God's design because he had set up in the Old Testament this idea of the Passover lamb and it was a, a way of recognizing the fact that the sins of the people did have to be paid for. And when they recognized that God provided in such a way, God would, would, would give them the forgiveness of sins. And all of that pointed to the eventual coming of Christ to earth, the ultimate Passover lamb, the once and forever Passover lamb. And so when we celebrate uh, communion here in a moment, uh, we will be celebrating that once and forever Passover lamb. And uh, 
we're gonna go to that part of the service now, so if the worship team wants to be playing for it, that'd be great. But there's two elements uh, of, the, of our communion service. There's the cup, it has grape juice in it, and that's a representation of the blood of Christ that was shed on our behalf. Like I described today as we talked about this crucifixion, this horrible death that Christ suffered on our behalf, but like the blood that was necessary for that Passover lamb, that's what Christ's blood does for us. It makes possible the forgiveness of sins and our relationship with God. The second element that's there that you'll find on the tables um, is, the, is the bread. And it's a representation of Christ's body. The fact that he gave up his position in glory, took on the body of a human being and came to earth to live with us serving both as a role model for us to how life should be lived and then sacrificing his body on the cross on our behalf as well. At the mission, our communion is open to anybody who's a follower of God, a, a believer in Christ's work on the cross. You don't have to be a member of this church. Um, our, when we open up our opportunity for communion, if you, there's three spots here, both sides of the stage and then at the back as well. I'm gonna pray for these elements and then as you feel led, feel free to, to uh, partake in the communion. When you bring it back to your uh, seat, um, pause, just thank God for what he's done on our behalf. Uh, thank him for his work in your life and in my life and all of our lives uh, for the difference that it makes. Let's pause in prayer. God, we, we love you. You suffered on our behalf. You sacrificed your son. Your son came to earth. Jesus Christ lived a sinless, perfect life, did not deserve what happened to him. And, it, and uh, 2,000 plus years ago, died on a cross, died on our behalf, Lord. And today, as we, we recognize that, we take a moment of remembrance on it as well through the partaking in communion of, of your body that was shed on, uh, that was, uh, that you sent to earth, that you uh, was sacrificed on our behalf, and then of the cup of the blood that was uh, sacrificed on our behalf, Lord. We thank you for what you've done for us. We ask this in your son's name, amen. And after you've had a chance to partake in communion, I'll come back up and we'll finish out our service. This is a depressing moment to finish a sermon, right? Here we are, the Savior of the world is, is hanging on a cross. And if you continue to read in that passage in, in John chapter 19, they take his body from the cross, they bury it in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And uh, if that was all there was to our faith, you could look at it and say, that's great, our sins have been paid for. But next week, something great is going to happen and joy comes back because next week we celebrate Easter in life and the fact that not only has the price for our sins been paid, the punishment that we all deserve, death has been defeated. So it's a great thing. Come back next week for that, right? Um, as we close today, I just want to challenge you with something. If you, tomorrow, tax day, right? And just sort of picture a uh, more... A cosmological kind of tax. You have this big tax bill. There's just no way that you can pay that bill. And it's a bill each one of us has. And the 
Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, says, I will pay that bill for you. What you deserve to pay, those consequences that you have to pay for your sins, I will cover that cost for you. I will pay it for you. That leaves you with a choice. You got a decision to make. Do I take that that's been done on my behalf and apply it so it can be paid in full? Or do I sit there and live in the, the dirtiness, the disgustingness, the despondency, the lack of joy that goes around with having this bill that I cannot pay? That's the choice every one of us has the opportunity to make. Do we accept the work that Christ has done on our behalf on the cross, or do we continue to wallow in the sin that's the, the result of our human nature as part of what each one of us experiences? And before you leave here today, if that's not something you've done, I just would ask that you embrace the fact that the God of the universe has made a way for you to be in relationship with him through what Christ has done on the cross. Today can be your day of salvation if you accept what Christ has done on your behalf. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for um, sacrificing on our behalf of making a way. And Lord, I just would ask that for each person here that they wouldn't go around holding this bill that they cannot pay, of, of having to deal with the consequences of the realities of sin uh, instead, that they would embrace what you've done on their behalf and therefore be able to be in a relationship characterized by joy that we can have with you, Lord. I just would ask that today would be the day of salvation for people here. And Lord, now as I invite our ushers forward, I would ask, Lord, that these tithes and offerings, this opportunity to give back a portion of what you've given to us would be used to further your kingdom and used for your kingdom's glory in Redlands, through the mission, and around the world, Lord. I just would ask that you'd bless each giver and each gift today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.